we, as we sang at the beginning of our service, uh, that as we're celebrating Independence Day just a couple days from now, and it's a blessing to look at how many years God has gifted to this wonderful nation, to see the privileges, to see the freedoms that we have. Uh, but there's also a lot that has changed since where this nation first began. Not that it was perfect even then, uh, but there are many areas in which we can certainly improve. And I thought and prayed about how the Lord is, is leading, and I um, sometimes I'll deviate from a series that we'll look at and we'll address a specific topic, and I thought that it was appropriate to continue on the same line that we've been looking at as far as how God has instructed us to be servants of his regardless of the circumstances. And as we've been looking at the life of the prophet Elisha, I figured that it would be appropriate to continue looking at this context and to see even in light of where we are here as a nation today, what are some things that we can grow upon? What are some things that we can learn as we continue to strive to serve the Lord in spite of the things that we see happening around us. So this morning we're looking at three verses, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and a sermon that I've titled, Expecting the Unexpected. Expecting the Unexpected. We'll look at these verses in just a moment, but I need to preface this before we actually read it. You may be familiar with this passage, you may not be familiar, and that's fine. But we're coming to this passage that may be difficult for people to stomach. Scholars have struggled with this passage, often suggesting alternative interpretations so as to make it more palatable for us as we read over it and understand what exactly it is saying. As we've been looking, though, at the life of Elisha and making the comparisons between his life and the servant of God, regardless of what day and age they're living in, this passage almost wouldn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to, to make that same connection. However, Upon closer review, I think you'll find, hopefully by the end of our message this morning, that it actually fits perfectly with everything that we've outlined thus far. Sometimes God has to deal with us in a loving but firm way. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is God's firm hand of judgment. What has made this passage difficult for many scholars throughout the years to accept is the object of God's judgment. No one should doubt the fact that God is in control and that God does always as he pleases. In many cases, God sends warnings to people, and in sending that warning, others will have to suffer greatly. But every warning that God sends is always warranted by disobedience and rebellion. God is not unjust to judge someone without cause. And as we will see this morning, God has every reason, every cause to do as he did here on this occasion in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now our passage this morning records the third miracle thus far in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And while the previous two miracles benefited Elisha and even the people of Jericho, this third miracle would serve as God's warning to a rebellious people. Now, you can argue with me that this miracle had negative effects, but there were still many positive lessons that could be learned from this. So, with your Bibles open, follow along as I read 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, and I'll read down through verse number 25. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. 
And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. Now, there are are many reasons why this is a sad story. But what we'll see is that the problem lies much deeper than what appears on the surface. I want you to notice, first of all, the connection of the miracle. The connection of the miracle. This passage begins with the word and. That is a conjunction. It's insisting that whatever happens after occurred not too long after what previously happened. And what previously happened is that the prophet Elisha was in Jericho. He had just left Jericho. And it says, as he's leaving Jericho, and in verse 23 begins, as he went up from thence, which would be Jericho, unto Bethel. Remember, when he was at Jericho, Elisha had been approached by the men of Jericho and had present, they, had been, they had presented the problem to him of the evil water, the, the water that was often uh, poisonous and it was causing all sorts of issues with the people there in Jericho. And Elisha, miraculously, through the power of God, healed that water. It was a huge problem that had been fixed by the power of God for as pleasant as the city of Jericho was, It had been cursed by God, and the land was basically barren. It was useless. The water was no good. The land bare no fruit. There was nothing else that they could offer. But God completely transformed everything about that city in this great miracle as he restored the waters. We're told in verse number 22, it says, So the waters were healed unto this day. What God did that day was permanent. He didn't just make the water good for a day or a week or a month, but he permanently changed the course of that city. When you look at Elisha's first miracle, where the waters of the Jordan River were parted, that doesn't seem as significant as the waters of Jericho being healed, but both were certainly miracles in themselves, but one seems to stand out in significance above the other. What seems to cast a pall, though, over this third miracle of Elisha is that it occurs following such an incredible work that benefited so many people. We probably can't think of how many people have benefited since then because that, it says again in verse number 22, the waters were healed unto this day. From the moment that God healed those waters in Elisha's day, they're still good even today. So we probably can't put a number as to how many people have benefited from that second miracle. But not long after he had spoken those words, he is cursing these children in the name of the Lord, and we're told that 42 of them died. This third miracle had a tragic outcome, which we'll get to in a moment. But the connection to the other miracles is what I'd like for you to see first. It is often the case that when the servants of God have been used by God to do something great, that they should expect to encounter some sort of opposition from the enemy. And honestly, not enough believers realize this truth and end up getting incredibly discouraged and suffer great bouts of depression because they're on this high after God has used them in some incredible way and then the devil does something to discourage them or cast a shadow over what's been done and before they're even able to realize it's from the devil, they get discouraged and depressed and disappointed over everything that has just been accomplished. After a period of blessing, after a time of encouragement, Always expect your enemy to strike. 
It may not always happen, but we should be ready for the attack. Our enemy knows when God uses us as believers in some great way. And the last thing he wants is for us to build up our confidence in God and in our service for God. So he's going to try everything in his power to turn that positive situation into something discouraging and something that is disappointing. Or he'll bring some attack that has us completely forgetting the good that God has just done through us where all we can focus on is the terrible problem that we're now faced with. I've seen it happen so many times where Satan just rains on the parade of believers who are celebrating what God has just done. It absolutely infuriates Satan to see something done for the glory of God, specifically when one of his victims is delivered from spiritual death into spiritual life. He cannot stand that. And believe me, Satan is cunning enough to know how to do this without us ever suspecting that this attack has come from him. Many times these attacks even come from within the church, from people who should know better. We, this past Tuesday, started a mom's group where moms and their children are able to come and to fellowship together twice a month. Moms, let me just tell you, expect Satan to try and discourage everyone that is involved. Expect him to try and make you feel like everything that has been done is a failure. Moms are involved. Kids are involved. So you better believe that Satan is going to be actively working to try and prevent this ministry, which just started this past Tuesday, from being something that grows and is, becomes a godly fellowship and a godly opportunity for moms to gather with their children and to get the fellowship that they need so desperately. We have VBS in just a couple weeks. Be prepared for Satan to reign all over that parade as well. Someone will have something negative to say about the number of children that we have attending or how hot it's going to be that week or how the rain isn't going to cooperate or with the number of volunteers we have or you know, how unruly the kids are going to be or any number of things. God's word is going forth and children are learning about the Lord. So absolutely expect some pushback from the enemy. He is actively seeking to brainwash these same children that are going to be in this building in less than 10 days. But he's expecting to brainwash them in the ways of the world and in the ways of man. And we're trying to teach them the truth. So better believe that there's going to be some pushback that we'll see this week. We expect negativity to come from outside the church. It's disappointing when we see it coming from within the church, though, because it goes to show that some people are not focused on the things that the Lord is doing, even within the walls of this building. Is every program and every ministry of the church going to operate perfectly? No, of course not. Will someone from the VBS skit forget a line? Yes, they will. Paige, you're shaking your head no. Definitely not you, probably someone else. It's going to happen. I'm sure they will. I did last year. Will there be some unruly children at VBS? Probably more than we can count. Will we encounter some rude and unwelcoming people when we go out canvassing? We probably will. If we're looking for reasons to be critical, we can always find something. But as believers, that shouldn't be our attitude. Our attitude should be to focus our efforts on serving Christ and encouraging others that are doing the same. 
As we've been looking at the life and ministry of Elisha, we've seen that he was favored both at Jordan, at the rivers of Jordan, as well as at Jericho. But our passage this morning has him at Bethel. And rather than being shown favor, we see the enemy strike the servant of God. Any time that the gospel is proclaimed, the enemy is going to be lurking. And a true servant of Christ knows that he is up against spiritual wickedness, especially when the gospel is being shared with others. If you know anything about the life of Christ, especially when the gospel is going forth and Jesus is teaching anyone, you know that he faced hostility. You know that he faced opposition to the gospel. You know that people hated just seeing him around anyone. Not long after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, do you remember what happened? The Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, but do you remember what happened almost immediately after he was baptized? Does anyone know where he went? He didn't go on vacation, did he? He was taken out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted by Satan. Something incredible has happened. John the Baptist baptizes him. There's an incredible scene as the Spirit of God descends upon him. A voice, an audible voice from God in heaven speaks. And then, almost as if none of that happened, he is taken out into the wilderness where he is tempted. He is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Do you think that was a coincidence? Do you think that it was a chance encounter that it all happened the way it did? Absolutely not. All of this happened. And it was all planned. Jesus was just starting his public ministry. And Satan was attempting to derail Jesus before he even gets started. It may not be something that we think about too much, but the truth is that when God is working through one of his servants, it is always going to get the attention of the enemy. Unfortunately, too many believers have been caught off guard when the enemy attacks seemingly out of nowhere. We're reminded in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 12, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, don't be surprised when the enemy attacks. In fact, it's a good sign that you're being attacked because you're making a dent in the enemy's agenda. You're causing all this commotion in hell to the point where the devil says, i got to stop this guy before it gets too out of control. So it's a good sign that you're being attacked. I wish I could tell you that the enemies, what the enemy's attacks all look like so you could all be prepared. When you see this, know that he's coming at you. But the truth is that Satan will come at us with tactics that we never anticipate. All I can tell you is that when you're faithful in the service of the Lord, expect to be on Satan's radar. Don't let it take you by surprise when people are critical of what you're doing and even how you're doing it, even if it comes from within these walls. I want you to think about the different settings that Elisha had to deal with. When Elisha miraculously crossed the Jordan River, he entered into Jericho, where he was gladly received, first by the sons of the prophets that were there, and then he was approached by the men of the city of Jericho who respected him and believed that he could do something to change the circumstances of the water. Now at Bethel, Elisha is mocked and he is ridiculed by children. Now Jericho, we've already talked about this, was a cursed city. 
It was a cursed city when it was destroyed, when the children of Israel marched around it and just destroyed everyone. God said, cursed be the one that ever builds this city back up again. And wouldn't you know, under King Ahab, the city was built back up again, but they were cursed. The waters were no good. The land was barren. It was a pleasant city, but there was nothing good in it. It was a cursed city, and God would use Elisha to be an instrument of blessing to those people in Jericho who showed him tremendous respect. At Bethel, which literally means the house of God, where blessings should be expected, Elisha solemnly pronounces a curse upon the children who mock him. Knowing anything about these cities, if I would have asked you in advance before we talked about Jericho, before we talked about what happened here in Bethel, which city would you have thought would have seen a curse pronounced upon them? Undoubtedly, we would have all said, definitely Jericho. It should have never been rebuilt in the first place. God said it was going to be a perpetual curse. It's definitely Jericho. If you're asking between Jericho and Bethel, which one's going to be cursed? It's definitely going to be Jericho. And yet the biblical account tells us the exact opposite, that Elisha had to actually pronounce a curse while he was at Bethel. Things don't always happen according to our expectations. So that's the connection of the miracle. But secondly, I want you to notice the occasion of the miracle, the occasion of the miracle. Look at verse number 23 again. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. Now the insulting and ridiculing of God's servant is what prompted this third miracle. As we read about this account, some would suggest that Children today are just as bad as how they were in those days. They are just as wild. They are just as rude. They are just as inconsiderate and disrespectful. And as much as we do see a continual trend of disrespectful and unruly and wild children, it is not true that each generation has witnessed the same conduct which now is present in children all over the world. When you look throughout history, you will find a direct correlation between God working in the church and the behavior of the children. This is not to say that the church is responsible for the child's poor behavior. However, throughout the years, much of the blame, I believe, falls upon the church. When churches water down the word of God, when churches quench the working of the Holy Spirit, that restraining hand of the Lord was essentially removed. And the aftermath trickled into all sections of the community and in the society. Honestly, what else would we expect when God's word is removed from the pulpits of churches across the world? How long do you think it would take for heresy and false doctrine to creep into society and culture if that's what's being taught from behind pulpits? We've literally watched the breakdown of law and order in the social realm, and many of us are looking and scratching our heads, wondering, how did Eric get to this? How did things get this bad? How are we where we are today? Without ever considering that we've aided to the breakdown of our culture by watering down and abandoning God's word. What happens when you start rolling a ball down a hill? It picks up steam, doesn't it? Does it slow down and come to a stop on its own? When the Bible-believing and Bible-preaching churches began compromising on God's standards, they started that ball rolling down the hill. And all we've seen for the last 20, 50, 60, 70 years is that ball pick up steam and pick up steam and pick up steam, which has fed right into the moral deterioration of our society. 
I talk to people all the time who tell me that they wish their children and grandchildren would be in church. Many of them were raised in church, but haven't stepped foot in the church in years for a variety of different reasons. It's hard enough when you raise your children in a godly environment and they no longer see the need for church today. But we're seeing a whole new generation of children today who are being raised by godless parents. So it's no surprise that we're now dealing with such reprehensible behavior from children and young people today. It used to be that those who were, uh, those, those who were guilty of stealing, those who were guilty of destroying property, those who were guilty of harming others were sternly rebuked and punished for their sinful actions. But lately what we've seen is that such conduct is being condoned and we'll throw around phrases like, oh, I know boys will be boys. They're, they're, they're just sowing wild oats. And that phrase is used to gloss over any number of sins. With kids, this starts when they're young. As Ruthie and I have been watching Levi grow, we'll watch that boy do things that he knows are wrong. And he's only not even a year and a half. And we have to catch ourselves at times because he's almost too cute to get away with it. We'll look at him, he'll smile, he'll be doing something that he knows is wrong, we'll tell him no, and he'll look at us, he'll smile, and we have to turn away and kind of laugh because, man, it's hard to get mad at this little boy. I emphasize almost, though. But this is the danger, because many parents dismiss rebellious behavior when their child is young because the child is too cute, or the child is just expressing himself in his own way or any number of other excuses. The world tells us that children don't need to be suppressed, but must be redirected. Psychologists and educational professionals have suggested that disciplining children actually inhibits their ability and prevents them from expressing themselves in their own way, so much so that corporal punishment is banished from schools. Today, if you follow the biblical model of disciplining children, you open yourself up to not just being called cruel, but you run the risk of even having someone call social services on you. We're told in Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. We're told in Proverbs 19, verse 18, it says, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Why do we do this? We do this because of what we read. In Proverbs 22, verse 15, it says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. You don't have to teach children to do wrong. You don't have to talk, them, talk to them while they're young and say, Okay, this is what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to tell you to do one thing, but I need you to go and do the opposite. You don't have to tell your children to do that. They're going to know to do wrong as it is. You're going to have to teach them right. And sometimes teaching them right involves discipline, correction. Because the foolishness is bound within the heart of that child. And the rod of correction is what drives them far from that. And finally, we read in Proverbs 23, 14. It says, Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. If parents disciplined children like this, biblical discipline, if they did this to their children in public today, they'd be hauled off to prison for child abuse. Things have changed so much in our society that biblical disciplining, biblically disciplining children is extreme. 
and has been replaced with this permissive attitude, allowing almost anything. Why do you think that 42 children died in 2 Kings 2.24? Were the children of Israel walking in the ways of God? Was God being worshipped in the home? Was God being worshipped in public? Absolutely not. This was a time of apostasy. And it showed based on the behavior of these children. If you really want to know the spiritual state of a home, of a church, of a city, of a state, of a nation, just take a look at the, ch at the children. Their behavior will tell you almost everything you need to know. There is a tremendous responsibility on the shoulders of every single parent. Proverbs 20.11 tells us, it says, Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. In many ways, children are products of their environments. Sometimes they're able to, to break that mold. But many times, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The example that we as parents set is crucial because we're instilling in the hearts and minds of our children what may stay with them the rest of their lives. The nation of Israel disregarded God's clear warnings of engaging in idol worship, and they were paying dearly for that sin. Think of how parents were impacted. These parents, how were they impacted by the news of the 42 dead children? I can't even imagine. Elisha's second miracle healed the waters of Jericho. And now this third miracle ended with 42 dead children and parents who were surely devastated. But these kids were following the example of their parents. Where do you think they learned this from? What are we teaching our children? Would God be acting in severe judgment toward our children or would he be showing them favor? We need to teach our children right, and that is to respect God, to respect God's word, and to respect God's servants. Far too many parents are more concerned with keeping their kids happy rather than showing them the proper way to live. Believe me, you'll suffer more anguish than the parents of those 42 children here in 2 Kings chapter 2 if you find that in the day of judgment, your children enter into everlasting condemnation. Do not neglect the tremendous responsibility of being a parent and being a godly parent. Set the most godly example that you can. Pray for your kids daily to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And as you pray for that, make sure that you're setting that example yourself. I want you to notice third, the location of the miracle. The location of the miracle. Again, verse number 23, it says, And he went up from thence unto Bethel. Bethel received its name back in Genesis chapter 28, by Jacob. Jacob, who experienced the Lord's presence in such a clear way, and the name Bethel literally means the house of God. And strangely enough, the house of God had become the dwelling place of Satan. It was there at Bethel where Jeroboam had set up one of the golden calves that Israel would worship in place of worshiping God. When the nation of Israel divided into two separate kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Jeroboam, king of the northern kingdom, was afraid of losing his subjects, his people, to go to the south where Jerusalem had the temple. He was afraid that everyone would leave to go and worship in Jerusalem and never come back. 
he decided that he would build two places of worship in the northern kingdom for his people to worship so that they don't ever have to cross the border. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12 where Jeroboam made two golden calves and placed one in Bethel and the other in Dan, which were both located in that northern kingdom. These two places became the hub of idol worship. And the northern kingdom became entrenched in idolatry. Bethel certainly fell miserably from the place that Jacob found it to be all the way back in Genesis 28 when it first got its name. And God's favor was no longer shown. And what makes this matter worse is that the people of Bethel should have known better. The fact that the children of Israel knew what God required of them knew that it was disobedience, knew that it was complete rebellion to worship idols, made what they were doing apostasy. They were openly defying God. They were guilty of the most fearful abominations. This was the state of Bethel when Elisha came upon it here in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. And this goes to show why these children were the way they are and why they said the things that they said and why such severe judgment came upon them. This was more than just boys being boys. This was more than just kids acting silly. This was a manifestation of an obstinate hatred of the one true God and his faithful servant, Elisha. Because Israel knew better than the pagan nations that were around them, their worship of the false god Baal was far worse than all the idolatry of the pagan nations. They were openly rebelling against God's command and teaching their children to do the same, and they paid dearly for this wrongdoing. The behavior of the children actually shows us that actions of apostates is generally fiercest towards those who oppose them and cling to the truth because the truth is the only thing that condemns them. Therefore, Elisha, being one of the few that was still faithful to God in an absolutely degenerate society, was public enemy number one. And even the children hated him. They knew enough about him to recognize him and to know who he was, and they hated him. So much for the so-called house of God. And notice fourth, the awfulness of the miracle. The awfulness of the miracle. Look at verse 24 again. It says, And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. This can easily be a very difficult passage to read because no one enjoys harm being done to children. However, the fact that God allows this to happen goes to show us the enormity of this offense. It's no secret that we have allowed so much garbage to be accepted in our society today. So much so that many scholars today cannot possibly fathom how such an account could ever make it onto the pages of Scripture. It has to be a mistake. Because this is not what we're taught is true regarding how much God loves us. So many struggle to see how the punishment fits the crime. All they did was mock him with their words. The only reason we start thinking this way is because God's word has been misrepresented. Because his claims have been disregarded and the position occupied by his servants has been so readily ignored. God has instructed in Psalm 105 and verse 15, he says, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. They are God's representatives. They are God's messengers. And insulting them is equal to insulting God. Many think too lightly of this and have to deal with God's displeasure. And notice again how Elisha was mocked. Back in verse number 23, it says, There came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. 
Now, at this point, word had spread about Elijah's departure uh, and supernatural departure at that. And it appears to have been met with much skepticism and ridicule by the people that were there in Bethel. Openly in rebellion uh, against God, they mock the idea of Elijah's supernatural departure so much that the children there in Bethel were actually mocking Elisha and telling him to go and do the same. Go up, thou bald head, go up. Leave, just like Elijah left, is what they're saying. They hated God so much, they wanted God's prophets gone altogether. So as they're seeing Elisha come, and they recognize the connection that he had to Elijah, who they've heard at this point has miraculously been taken. They don't know where, but he's gone. And so they're looking at Elisha, and they say, you know what, it'd be a good thing for you to go as well. There was no place here for Elijah, and there's no place for you, so why don't you go up and just disappear, just like Elijah disappeared? This is what they were saying. The sin of these children was very serious, but the greater guilt was upon their parents. The fate of these children served as an awful rebuke and warning to those disobedient and rebellious parents. Proverbs 26.2 tells us, it says, The curse causeless shall not come. The curse causeless shall not come. In other words, God doesn't punish without cause. The curse causeless shall not come. God doesn't punish without cause. And notice what Elisha did again in verse number 24. It says, he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. He cursed them in the name of the Lord, not for personal reasons, not to get revenge, but to vindicate his insulted master. Elisha would not have been allowed to curse these children had he been wrong. God would have prevented it. The fact that it happened serves to show that this was a just warning and judgment from God of the awful judgment that was soon to come to the entire nation of Israel as a result of their rebellion and their idolatry. I want you to listen to what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verses 15 through 16, some of the, the final words of the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 16. The Bible says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So God is doing everything to reach his people. But notice how it goes on. It says, But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. God is giving opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity. He's sending prophet after prophet after prophet, warning the people to get right because if they don't, judgment is going to come. And here in this chapter, here in this passage, we see the manifestation of that rebellion through the response and through the attitude of these children. It's just a, a, a drop in the bucket as you look at the giant problem that was there in Israel. And God had been warning and warning and warning. And as it says there in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, they had despised his words, mocked the messengers of God, misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. God extended mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy through prophets, through his messages, through the words, through everything God was doing, giving them the opportunity to avoid the wrath. 
but they rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. And it says, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Some of the saddest words. God extending opportunity, people rejecting it. God ultimately want to give grace, but they won't receive it. And so God is forced to act in judgment upon those who deserve it, upon those who knew it was coming. Here at Bethel, God was giving these people a serious warning and a taste of his wrath that was soon to come should they not repent of their ways and turn to him and treat his servants better. That is the awfulness of the miracle. And number five, I want you to notice the meaning of the miracle, the meaning of the miracle. So as servants of God today, now I know we're getting ready to celebrate Independence Day in just a couple days, but what I see as I look around just this nation is that there's a lot of work to be done. There's honestly nothing that is stopping God from saying the same exact thing that he said in 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16 about the nation of Israel to say that to us today. That the Lord God has sent his messengers, that they have risen up be times, that he has had compassion on his people, but we have mocked, we have despised, we have misused, and we're just ripe for the judgment and the wrath of God to be upon us to the point where there is no remedy. So as servants of God today, what does this mean to us? What is our responsibility as Christians living in America? How can we relate to these words here? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and verses 15 and 16, it describes the servants of Christ. It says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. Now certainly... We cannot do the same things that the prophet Elisha did who spoke through the power of God and healed the waters or, or cursed those who mocked him. But we can point out all those who talk of commitment to Christ but have no genuine love for him as being cursed. It states in 1 Corinthians 16.22, it says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. And the language here speaks of punishment from God to the point of eternally separated from God. This is not a believer losing his salvation, but rather those who claim to love God but don't truly believe on him, they will be the ones to suffer and to suffer eternally. This was the message that God was sending to the nation of Israel. A nation that was claiming to be God's people but were openly, defiantly against God worshiping false gods. The chapter ends with verse 25 where it says, and he went from thence to Mount Carmel and from thence he returned to Samaria. We're not told exactly what happened at Carmel, but after this unpleasant experience at Bethel, Elisha travels to Mount Carmel, which was the place where God answered the prayer of Elijah and sent fire down from heaven. So we see here Elisha's need, I believe, for strength to be renewed as she surely spent time in prayer with God before traveling to Samaria, another degenerate city of the apostate Israel. Elisha was showing his readiness to be used by God, even though he was unsure as to what awaited him around each corner. Elisha was expecting the unexpected, because as he faithfully trusted in God's power, which led him every step of the way, he knew that God would often allow circumstances like this to come up as a means of teaching his people a much bigger lesson. As tragic as it is, as horrific as this passage may be, 
we see God teaching a lesson and an incredibly painful lesson, but a valuable lesson for people today to learn because it wasn't just one instance that he lashed out. God had been warning and warning and warning and warning. And their open rebellion and rejection and rejection and rejection manifested itself in this most awful way to the point where God was forced to act. I pray that we can recognize as servants of Christ today the work that we need to be doing. Yes, we, we can say that we live in the greatest country of the world, but man, you look around and it doesn't seem all that great, does it? You look around and you see that there's so much need. And we have missionaries that, that leave this country and go to other countries, and I can argue that we're probably in greater need than any other country. And I don't want to discourage anyone who feels called into the foreign mission field at all. But every believer needs to recognize their calling to be a servant of God and to be a missionary where they are. Because where God has placed you is where you need to serve him. And he may call you to the foreign mission field or he may call you to your Judea, your Samaria, your Jerusalem. And that is right where he has you. There is need everywhere. Everywhere there are people who are hopelessly lost who may or may not know the truth and have rejected it, but either way, they need to hear the truth and they need to see it lived in those who are the true servants of Christ around them. So live that life. Make sure that the word of God is what you're building your life upon, that it is your source of faith and practice. Make sure that it starts with your home, that your children see it, that your grandchildren see it, that your great-grandchildren see it, and make sure that beyond the walls of your home, beyond the walls of this church, that you're consistent with that as well, that you're walking in the ways of the Lord, that you're living that spirit-filled life, regardless of what others may say or how they may view you or treat you, you make the commitment to stand for Christ and count the cost as more valuable than to compromise and to live like the world. Elisha was expecting the unexpected, and we should too. Because when we live for Christ, expect that things are going to get a little crazy. Expect the enemy to attack. Expect him to try and discourage you from what you're doing. But keep your focus on Christ, because when you do that, he is going to give you all the strength you need to overcome every attempt the enemy throws at you. And remember to stand and face it, and not to run and cower in fear. Put on the armor of God, as Ephesians 6 tells us to do, and stand ready through the power of Christ to face whatever challenges life, Satan, the world throws at you, and to face it head on for the work and ministry of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of, of who we need to be as servants of yours. We thank you, Lord, for the example that we have here, Lord, in a very difficult passage, but a passage, Lord, that is in your word and that we can learn from nonetheless. I ask, Lord, that you would help equip each one that is here today, Lord, all the true servants of yours that have come to you in faith, Lord, believing in your son, Jesus Christ, as their savior. Lord, equip us, give us the tools that we need to be your servant, and Lord, to be an effective minister for you. The world around us needs your, needs your truth, and Lord, you have chosen us to be your instruments. May we be an instrument, Lord, that is in tune with you and in your hands, Lord, that we are effectively communicating your truth. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your example in your son, Jesus Christ. May we honor and glorify him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I'm going to ask Brother Mike Henry to come up and lead us in at least one song as uh, we get ready for our baptismal service. So uh, stay where you are.